Welcome to QuackCast 23, a skeptical and sarcastic evaluation of quacks, frauds, and charlatans. Sorry, blew it again. I mean supplements, complementary, and alternative medicine. Scams. This is the first podcast of 2008, and it's going to be a random rant on why you should trust nobody. This is brought to you as a side project of Pusware LLC, the publisher of the personal Pfizer's annotated compendium of infectious facts, dogma, and opinion. Your Uber hyperlinked guide to infectious diseases at pusware.com, where you will find the Persifizers podcast, a bi-monthly review of infectious diseases, now CME accredited. As Thomas Jefferson said in a different context, ridicule is the only weapon that can be used against unintelligible propositions. Ideas must be distinct before reason can act upon them. So I like to practice in this podcast evidence-based ridicule. References are available on the show notes page and old podcasts are archived there as well. MP3s are also available on my .Mac public folder. The link is on the website. This podcast is a rant as to why you cannot trust anybody when they purport to tell you what the medical literature says. And as an example in this podcast, I'm going to use the near-death experiences or NDEs. And we will avoid the obvious paradox that this podcast elicits. Why am I going to comment on this? Well, this month's skeptic has a back and forth between Michael Shermer and Deepak Chopra about life after death. Now, I'm not going to comment upon whether there is life after death. I'm more interested in life during life. Thank you very much. And I'll let the afterlife take care of itself. But in their point-counterpoint, they both refer to a Lancet article about near-death experiences, and it begs the question, does anyone actually read or understand the literature they quote? I know this is a small point, but I went and read, I mean really read, the December 1 Lancet, entitled Near-Death Experience in Survivors of Cardiac Arrest, a Prospective Study in the Netherlands. It's available online if you want to follow along at home. I read this article with the bias of a practicing physician who spends all his time in an acute care hospital, and I have been involved in my share of cardiac arrests over the years. Now, I haven't caused them, but I have helped out in patients' care who have had an arrest in one way or another. Both sides in this article say that the patients were dead, or nearly dead, or close enough for an organ harvest. Read the paper. I don't think so. In the article, they quote, defined clinical death as a period of unconsciousness caused by insufficient blood supply to the brain because of inadequate blood circulation, breathing, or both. If, in this situation, CPR is not started within 5 to 10 minutes, irreparable damage is done to the brain, and the patient will die. Note that caveat. If CPR is not started, the patient will die. Every patient in this study had CPR, most within 10 minutes of their arrest. Everyone had blood delivered to their brain. That's the point of CPR, to provide sufficient blood to the brain and other organs. It is, as an aside, why the conclusion of the study and the discussion is flawed. Quote, if purely physiologic factors resulting from cerebral anoxia cause NDE, most of our patients should have had this experience, end quote. Good CPR does not lead to cerebral anoxia. Most patients in this study did not have an NDE because they had CPR. So they had blood and oxygen deliver the brain, so they could not have had anoxia-mediated NDE. Duh. So the question as to whether patients who have brain anoxia have an NDE is no way determined in this paper because CPR is itself not a good surrogate for cerebral anoxia. 
having a cardiac arrest and being promptly coded does not mean there is insufficient blood and oxygen being delivered to the brain. CPR has variable efficacy depending on both the patient and the experience of the provider. Most of us who have been involved in a code know, for example, the horrible sensation of all the ribs cracking when you start CPR on a frail old lady and knowing that the CPR is probably not going to be effective. As a result of variable CPR, the time it takes for the brain to become anoxic is itself variable. And you'd be surprised at how little oxygen people can tolerate with no discernible dysfunction on their cognition, although you may not want them flying your 747. People come into the hospital all the time with the amount of oxygen in their blood decreased by 30, 40, 50%, and they can walk and talk. Maybe it's those people who are only using 20% of the brain who tolerate their anoxia better. Now, how much anoxia the brain can tolerate depends also in part on temperature. You die more slowly if you are cold. When I was a resident in Minnesota, there was a saying when people were hauled in from the snowbanks with no pulse or pressure that no one is dead until they are warm and dead. The point of all this is that during a resuscitated cardiac arrest, the ability of the brain to get oxygen can be variable. And if CPR is done effectively, then the brain probably gets enough oxygen that it is not damaged. By the definitions of the paper, nobody experienced clinical death. No doctor would ever declare a patient in the middle of a Code 99 dead, much less brain dead. Now I know, picky, picky, picky. But having your heart stop for 2 to 10 minutes and then being promptly resuscitated doesn't make you clinically dead, except for the definition of this paper. It only means that your heart isn't beating and you may not be conscious. Although the discussion states they were clinically dead, it takes a lot more than a short course of no heartbeat to be dead in this day and age but it sure sounds impressive. So when Dr. Shermer quotes the article saying the patients were, quote, clinically dead, quote, they weren't. They were cardiac arrest patients who were all received prompt resuscitation. They were, quote, clinically dead, quote, only if nothing was done to them, which is probably not going to pass any hospital ethics committee. And that brings up a question as to when you are dead. Dying is a continuum. If your heart doesn't beat for 15 minutes, you're a goner. 10, not so much. 5, you'll probably be okay. 1, one minute of no heartbeat? 30 patients in this study had deliberate cardiac arrest in the cath lab that lasted for less than a minute. They were clinically dead. Now I had a supraventricular tachycardia that was due to an aberrant conduction pathway. In non-medical terms, I had a rapid heart rate due to faulty wiring, which has been subsequently fixed. It was intermittent and for years I tried without excess to capture the arrhythmia so I could get it repaired. One day it hit when I was on the cardiac floor, so I had them slap some leads on me and voila, the diagnosis was made and, much to my chagrin, I was being whisked off to the emergency room at the assistance of the cardiologist. But I have patients to see. I don't have time for this. Anyway, they popped in an IV and they gave me a slug of adenosine, which is basically the control-alt-delete for the heart. Fortunately, it reboots much faster than Windows. So there I am watching the monitor with this crazy tachycardia and then three seconds of... Nothing. Flatline. No heartbeat. Kind of freaky. Just three seconds and then bop! Back in normal sinus rhythm. Was I dead? The point is that declaring someone dead if their heart isn't beating is not so simple. And in this study, you were dead if you had no pulse and were unconscious. This is not a good definition, but it makes for a catchy title. Now was Superman dead when he was beaten to death by Doomsday? No. He met the criteria of the paper, but he came back. 
And how about Wesley when he was thrown into the pit of despair? Dead? I think not. That's sort of an issue in this paper where the patients were dead, but then they look at near-death experiences. So what were they? Were they dead? Mostly dead? Completely dead? All dead? Well, with all dead, there's usually only one thing that you can do. What's that? Go through his clothes and look for loose change. All the patients in this study had change in their pockets when they left the hospital. The only case I know of someone who is truly dead and moldering in their grave and came back with a good description of a near-death experience, or in this case, a death experience, was Buffy in Season 6. But I digress. I think that should have been the name of this podcast, but I digress. Now, the other way you can declare people dead is brain dead, and again, not so easy to do. There are many criteria for brain death. The patient has to have no clinical evidence of brain function by physical examination. So technically, you have to examine the Senate before you can declare them brain dead. But they have to have no response to pain, a variety of nerve reflexes that do not work, like fixed pupils, and no corneal reflex, and no spontaneous respirations. And they have to be off all drugs that mimic brain death for several days, and they cannot have metabolic conditions that mimic death. It's important to distinguish between brain death and states that mimic brain death, and most patients in this study received either a benzodiazepine, which is a Valium-like drug, and are a narcotic. And if someone is brain dead, it's nice to have a flatline EGG as well, and usually two and usually at least 24 hours apart. A good surrogate for being brain dead is the person who drives 45 in the left lane of the freeway with their left turn signal on. Now that's not really true, but it should be. And there are a lot of people I think I should be able to declare brain dead, like the people who can't play nine holes of golf in less than three hours and don't let me play through. They're dead. Bury them. But again, I digress. The point being is that being declared brain dead is a time-consuming and detailed process, as it should be. And this will become important in a moment. Now, Dr. Shermer at least quotes the paper that the patients are, quote, clinically dead, using the paper's own flawed definitions. But as we have seen, their definition of being clinically dead is an artifice used for the paper but has no clinical or physiologic relevance. Now, Mr. Chopra, as best I can tell in the skeptic article, just makes shit up. Yes, shit. He states that, quote, with emphasis, when there was no measurable activity in the brain, and emphasis, when in fact they were brain dead. Nowhere, and I mean nowhere, in the Lancet article do they mention whether, besides being unconscious, neurologic function was assessed and the diagnosis of brain dead was determined. Brain dead, as we saw, is a condition not made at the time of an arrest, but a diagnosis that takes time, and the patient has to meet multiple criteria before being declared brain dead. They were unconscious for a short period of time after a cardiac arrest, and that is not the same as no measurable brain activity or being brain dead. Let me repeat that. None. That's none. Zero. Zilch. Nada. Zippo. Empty set of these patients in this study were brain dead. If they had been brain dead, they would have had their organs donated, then buried, not interviewed. They were unconscious for mostly short periods of time, a state that, if being the same as brain dead, means many college students are dead on Saturday nights. Finally, a solution for the lack of transplantable organs. In the discussion of the paper, the authors state, quote, Also, in cardiac arrest, the EEG usually becomes flat in most cases within 10 seconds, of the onset of syncope, end quote. They reference an Annals of Internal Medicine article as well as one in the journal Anesthesiology, 
where they put EEG monitors on patients who are about to have defibrillators implanted. One of the side effects of having a defibrillator placed is your heart is often stopped for a period of time. You have a heart rhythm induced called ventricular tachycardia that is usually fatal but can, to a small degree, perfuse the brain. The quote that is referenced in this paper is simply not true. I pulled the articles and I read them. What they showed was slowing and attenuation and other changes on the EEG, but only a minority of patients had a flat line and it took longer than 10 seconds. The curious thing was that even a little blood flow in some patients was enough to keep the EEG normal. To quote the Annals article, quote, electrocephalographic changes were variable. Background slowing was usually followed by a relative loss of electrocerebral activity, end quote. Now that's a big difference in saying that everybody flatlines in 10 seconds. How long does it take to flatline? Well, if there's zero perfusion, the best I can figure out in talking with the experts around my hospital is more like 20 seconds, and that's if there's no perfusion. And the EEG experts tell me that the sensitivity of an EEG for function is more like a 1 megapixel camera than a 10 megapixel camera. The brain doesn't start to die until several minutes go by. In my state, at least, the EEG is considered so insensitive it does not have to be included as part of the criteria for determining if someone is brain dead, although we get it anyway. But a flatline EEG is only part of the mix. An EEG cannot determine between the temporary cessation of function due to a lack of blood flow from a cardiac arrest versus a permanent lack of function because your brain is dead. So flatline EEG has to be interpreted in the context of the patient's clinical situation. <laughs> what a concept. So the quote in the article that the EEG becomes flatline in most cases within 10 seconds of sympathy is not supported by the literature they reference. So that brings up several options. One, they can't read. Two, they can read but they cannot understand. Three, they can read and they can understand but they cannot write a coherent sentence. Or four, they are deliberately making shit up to bolster their position knowing well that few will look up their references. Now in medicine and in the medical literature, either you have integrity all the time in everything or everything you do is suspect. That one lie, I mean line, in that article is so counter to the substance of the article's reference means to my mind that the whole article is suspect. You judge a man by the company he keeps. So Mr. Chopra's analysis that they were flatlined and brain dead suffers from the same problems as the authors of the Lancet article. It simply isn't supported by the particulars of the literature he quotes. So to my mind, Mr. Chopra's writing has the same options. He can't read or doesn't read the literature he quotes. He can read, but he can't understand what he read. He can read and understand, but he can't write a coherent sentence. Or finally, he's making shit up to bolster his position. Now, I have not read the rest of Mr. Chopra's oeuvre, so I have no information at hand to be able to distinguish which of the above options represents his modus operandi. Now, both authors quoted the article correctly as to the number of near-death experiences but it depended on how an NDE was defined. So when Shermer says it's 12% and Chopra says it's 18% of patients had an NDE, both were correct. It depends on how many criteria you include as part of your NDE, as NDE is defined in two different ways in this paper. 
Also, by the way, if you read the discussion, you will find that the authors suspect a selection bias in their study. And they offer a, quote, real rate of 10% for NDEs, or probably only 5% of patients if based on the number of resuscitations, as the more times you had CPR, the more times you had an NDE. They also admit in their discussion that their broad definition of NDEs makes their percentage higher as it was more inclusive. Again, it depends on how you define NDE. So to say that 18% or 12% of it, people who have death have a near-death experience depends again on your definitions. Dr. Shermer at least had the intellectual honesty to delineate which criteria he used from the study for his percentage. Mr. Chopra doesn't bother to explain why there are two different percentages of NDE in the study, choosing to present the alternative percentage as if Dr. Shermer were misquoting rather than selectively quoting the study. To wit, the actual figure was 18%, by the way, end quote. I like that snarky, by the way, which sort of implies that Dr. Shermer is lying. At least that's my interpretation. As if I, of all people, should be commenting on snarky comments. On his website, Mr. Chopra puts MD after his name, and based on his reading and analysis of the paper, I'm suspicious that MD here may represent an homage to Maryland. Perhaps he has an affiliation with the University of Maryland, go Terrapins, or he has an affinity for Baltimore, I mean, Balmore. And I think henceforth I am to be known as Mark Chrislip OR because I like Oregon so much. But if MD here means medical doctor, he should know better. If I had a med student on service who did such a horseshit analysis of a paper and made up the conclusions, they would be hard-pressed to pass their infectious disease rotation. It is doubly ironic, as Mr. Chopra refers to Dr. Shermer as having, quote, slipshod reasoning, unquote, and, quote, misrepresents and distorts Robert Sheldrake, end quote, and says, quote, skepticism is only credible when it is not being devious, end quote. Holy pots, kettles, and blackness, Batman. The only thing this article can say is who in this study population had an NDE and what, within the definition of the study, constituted an NDE. Nothing can be said as to what the etiology of an NDE is, except with a caveat that, to quote from the accompanying commentary. Ready for a big quote? The investigators report that, at the two-year follow-up, four of 37 patients contacted Actus Controls, i.e. patients who had not initially reported an NDE, reported that they had had one. Although these patients represent fewer than 1% of the total sample, they represent over 10% of the 37 patients interviewed with a view to acting as controls. If this subsample is at all representative, it applies that around 30 patients from a sample of 282 who initially denied NDE would, if they had survived another two years, be claiming that they had one, end quote. In other words, in retrospect, people make up that they had NDEs. It would appear that NDEs are, to some extent, in some patients, perhaps made up, just like the discussion above. The discussion also shows a bias towards Wu, quote, we did not show that psychological, neuropsychological, or physiologic factors cause these experiences after a cardiac arrest, end quote. Of course not, as the study was not set up to have any reliable way whatsoever to comment on the causation of NDEs. 
And this is followed by, quote, NDEs push at the limits of medical ideas about the range of human consciousness and the mind-brain relation, end quote, yawn. I do not see this conclusion from the data in the article. Upon close reading, I think the only thing this paper is qualified to determine is a description of who gets NDEs as defined by this study. As to the etiology of NDEs, much less the mind-brain relation, it can say nothing. Now, I'm not saying that NDEs don't happen. They do. And I'm not going to disagree with the idea that nearly dying is transformative in some people. It is. It's probably why the real NDEs have greater effects than lab-induced NDEs. The knowledge that you are really, truly mortal is life-altering. Cancer survivors can have the same sort of epiphany without the bother of having a cardiac arrest. But the devil is in the details, and is so often the case when you go back and read the original paper and take the time to hunt down the references within that paper, what it says and what the paper is purported to say will surprisingly turn out to be two very different things. So in the end, the point-counterpoint on NDEs was, to my mind, done between two people who did not really understand the paper. One honestly so, and the other maybe not so much. So the take-home messages? Read the original literature. Look out for cherry-picking. Remember that what a paper says and what people say it says are not the same thing. Once a liar, always a liar. And trust no one but me. But my website has the references. Now you can read them for yourself. I'm sure you'll let me know if I was wrong. But my motto has always been frequently in error, never in doubt. So this ends another quack cast. Brought to you as a side project of Pusswear.com, where you will find the Persiflagers podcast, a bi-weekly review of infectious diseases where you can get type 1 CME for free. Copyright 2008. Happy New Year. The Creative Commons. References and show notes are linked on quackcast.com where old podcasts are archived as well. Send your hate mail and spam and questions about quackery to knowitall at quackcast.com. I may eventually answer it. I find answering email to be onerous, but eventually, I promise you, you will get some sort of half-assed reply. So that's it. See you next time. Thank you. In dictation. Goodbye.